Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 107, Another Cold Case. Nearly two years ago, back in episode 28, I interviewed Jay Warner Wallace from the Please Convince Me podcast to discuss the Gospels as reliable eyewitness testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Since then, Jim and I have become somewhat friends, and uh, since then he's written and published a book, Cold Case Christianity, and today you'll hear my recent interview with him to discuss his book. But before we get into that, I just wanted to let you all know that it won't be too terribly much longer before I'll be able to return to a more frequent podcast schedule. I've grown, a, I've grown really busy in a number of areas in my life, and I'm spending a little more time with another ministry uh, than with mine to help it get up and running with steady content uh, until more of its contributors can more fully engage. Some of you have noted my greater level of activity there, and I can understand uh, why you hope to see me putting more podcasts of my own out. Um, I have started to settle into a bit of a groove in these various areas of my life, and it won't be too long before I'm able to commit more time to this podcast, so please just hang in there a little longer. Uh, already in the works are interviews with Michael Burgos and with Dee Dee Warren, uh, and I'll try to prepare for more episodes beyond those as well. I'll also make sure I have more meaningful things to say in these monologues, uh, but for now I'll just play the next promo in my rotation for Stand to Reason with Greg Kokel. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. Greg and I don't see eye to eye on a number of issues, but I can't say enough about how great uh, of a person he is, how, how much I appreciate his ministry, how much I appreciate his radio show, and how much I hope to be able to learn from the humility and grace that he exhibits when he's talking with people that he disagrees with. I've definitely got a lot to learn there, and I think you do as well. And I think you'll, show, you'll find his show interesting and challenging and uh, encouraging and a whole, a whole host of other things as well. Uh, the radio program is live on the air every Sunday, 2 to 5 p.m. Pacific time on AM 740 KBRT. I've also got link in, uh, a link in my show notes where you can um, uh, where you can go to get the podcast where each episode is published the day after it airs and where you can listen online live while it airs. Uh, I hope you'll check those show notes out and I hope that you'll check Stand to Reason out. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview with Jay Warner Wallace. Another Just another cold case and that's the cold facts. Another cold day in hell and that's that. Speak truth with these raps. Teach you I'm joined today for a second time by my guest and friend, Jay Warner Wallace. Jim has been a police officer for 25 years, serving in a number of different capacities, most recently and currently as a cold case homicide detective. 
He's found that the talents and skills he's developed investigating cold cases lend themselves powerfully to the work of Christian apologetics, which he shares with his readers and listeners at pleaseconvinceme.com, and which he writes about in his recent book, Cold Case Christianity, which he joins me to discuss today. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. You're so welcome, Chris, and thank you for having me. As you know, we, we couldn't, you and I have kind of gone back and forth on email and, <laughs> and podcasts and on Standard Reason Radio, so I'm very comfortable and glad to be uh, with you on the show. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, for those listeners, as you pointed out, we have talked in the past. For those listeners who didn't catch your previous appearance on my show, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your story? You, you write, for example, in the preface of your book that your friends knew you as an angry atheist, a skeptic who thoughtfully dissected Christians and the Christian world worldview. So can you tell us about that and, and what it is it changed? What caused it to go from this angry skeptic to what you know what is now a passionate apologist? I don't think yeah, I don't think I was really so much angry at the claims of Christianity, but I was dissatisfied with the kinds of responses I got from the Christians in my world, and so I just had no patience for what I saw as truly um, kind of blind, unjustified belief, mm. and and so that's where I was just I had no I had no tolerance for it, and the most of my friends who would have uh, seen me in this light were like minded. I mean, we, I had a lot of uh, coworkers who were cops, and we had a few uh, folks on the agency who were Christians. And um, I really didn't have deep conversations with all those Christians. I don't want to kind of lump them all in the same category. But the few that I would sometimes converse with left a lot to be wanting in terms of, you know, it's kind of like we were evidential in every other aspect of our careers. But when it came to the issues of faith, these folks would just kind of turn off that part of their their their, their psyche or their brain, you know. And so for those of us who were non-believers, uh, we would mock these guys. And I can remember very uh, often, uh, especially when I was working in surveillance, it was really at a time when this was coming to a head for me. And I had a friend who I was working with on the surveillance team, and whenever we weren't on the eye, we weren't responsible for watching the bad guy for those two-hour blocks, we would be off on a perimeter of that surveillance, kind of talking to each other and, and often making fun of those people we knew who were believers. Mm. And and I think uh, I, I often take some pushback from these guys now because um, – you know, either if they're still really committed to their atheism, they don't talk to me at all about these issues, uh, or if there are if there are people who are rather neutral at that time, they make fun of me that I've had a swing in terms of my uh, perspective and my worldview, and they'll always say, "Yeah, I knew you back when you were a jerk," you know. And so <laughs> those kinds of things are often said to me as I get ready to finish my career in law enforcement. And so I think that that's mostly where it came from. It wasn't so much that I was. You know, the kind of guy who thought, well, Christianity is vile and evil and is ruining the world. That that wasn't really my, my perspective. It was just that Christians are just blindly uh, willing to turn off their brains mm. to believe this nonsense. And that's where my impatience and disrespect – and you can imagine uh, guys who put together cases evidentially – don't typically have a lot of patience for people who are um, not an evidential on something that's as important as a, you know a, a a thing as religion or as as uh, issues of God. Sure. And, and that used to drive me crazy about people. So so that, I think that's mostly where my hostility. The other thing too, I noticed, and I never really thought of myself as a. Um, as so much an angry, and when I use that term, my wife always says, "Why do you call yourself angry?" <laughs> and and my dad one time, when I was talking to my dad, who's still an atheist, he he couched it quite well. He says, "You know, I'm I'm an atheist, but I'm not an angry atheist like you were. Hmm. I'm just a um, disinterested, you know, uh, dispassionate. Yeah, dispassionate. It's no big deal to me one way or the other. I'm not angry like you were." And I thought, "Wow, was it that bad?" Where my own dad. 
uh, who was also an atheist, would have seen me as something different than him. I guess it was. At the time, I was just uh, more disgusted, I think, than uh, like you know so much against Christianity. I wasn't that I was against Christianity. I was just against any kind of thinking that wasn't based in a really strong uh, collection of evidences. So, well, so with that in mind, what, what is it that changed? What what took somebody as you know focused on evidence as as you and and turned them into somebody who thinks that the evidence does in fact back the claims of the Christian worldview? Well, a lot of it, I think, is is that as um, you know, I got a look, a peek at the claims of Christianity as a child, and my mom was a um, was a, um, a kind of a cultural Catholic and raised me up in the uh, in the in the Catholic Church. Uh, I was not a believer at the time. I went to school, the Sunday, you know, the catechism, whatever they call it uh, now, they call it CCD. I, I went to the courses. But I was, I was disinterested. I was, I, I just listened to the stories. The only exposure I had to the Gospels was at that limited time frame, and so then for the next, you know, all those years as a kid, and all those years as a teenager until I was 35, the most um, uh, examination I had done was in my first readings as you know as a kid, and then maybe a little bit in high, and as a, as a uh, you know middle school age kind of a kid. And you know, so I was familiar with the Gospels in those ways, but I had not looked at them with the eyes of a detective because I wasn't a detective in those days. Mm. So most of my skepticism was ground in, and grounded in my first uh, reading, and then, of course, in the years and afterward, when I was reading the work of, of non-Christians, of uh, folks who were, not, you know, in high school, I had a, a sociology teacher who was a Baha'i, and I, I, you know, I was interested in, I've always been interested in ancient, uh, you know, kind of wisdom. So I was, you know, so I did read through the works of Baha'u'llah just because I was interested in kind of uh, the proverbial wisdom of an ancient sage, although he's not that ancient. But the <laughs> point is, you know, that somebody who precedes you and has some kind of uh, historical wisdom. So when, when Jesus was first presented to me as an adult at 35, just as somebody who might offer a similar uh, set of proverbial time-tested teachings – I thought, well, I mean, look, I, I read Baha'u'llah as a non-believer. I never became a Baha'i as a result of that. I wasn't interested. I'm not interested in this either, but I probably could read something that may have some impact. And that's how I first started to examine the Gospels, not mm. because I was interested in uh, God or finding a relationship with God. I had no need like that. I wasn't broken. I had no uh, – my marriage was great. Uh, I happened to have to see that this presentation of Jesus as a smart guy prompted me to buy my first Bible that I actually – Owned as an adult, which was a six-dollar pew Bible that I got, and uh, I just was interested in the red letters. Let's see what Jesus has to say. But the problem, of course, is in order to get to the red letters, you read through all the other <laughs> gospel stuff too. And right away, Chris, it struck me, and I mentioned in the book what I call these un- uh, uh, kind of unintentional eyewitness support. J.J. Uh, uh, Blunt had called it in the, in the 19th century um, undesigned coincidences. Mm. These I, these places. Where um, an eyewitness comes along and tells you five things, and those five things have four holes in the story that don't make any sense. And the next guy comes along and tells you four things with five holes, and it turns out when you put the two things together, the two eyewitness statements together, it all seems to make sense. And neither one knew the other's statement or uh, intended to intentionally fill in the gaps. They just happened to come together. Mm. I started to see similar uh, elements of unintentional eyewitness support. When reading the Gospels, uh, you read an account that makes no sense to me as a non-believer. Uh, you know that, that Jesus would call the disciples at the side of the lake, and they would just follow him. I mean, mm-hmm. who, does, who does that, right? And but then, of course, when you read the other accounts, you understand why it happened in a certain sequence. And these rather unintentional aspects of the eyewitness support, to me, 
became um, just interesting. No, mm. Nothing nothing conclusive, just prompted me to do another level of study. And this continued to happen where I would just take another level of study, another level of study. And that's what's really in the book is in the second half of the book. It's just an, a kind of unwrapping all of the things that I looked at that I thought were powerful for me. Uh, and when I got to the Gospel of Mark and did a forensic statement analysis on Mark, you know, it took me a while to get there, Chris, because – you know, when you do a forensic statement analysis on someone's testimony, uh, on someone's statement about what he was doing on the day of a murder, let's say, mm-hmm. you have to have something to examine. And I was usually examining, is this guy lying to me or not? Is this guy you know, responsible for this murder? But what am I going to examine in the Gospels that is succinct enough? And so when I finally got to a place where I was familiar enough with the story and started to do the digging and started to compare the Gospels and looked at some first uh, um, century history related to the Gospels and saw that Papias had called out Mark's Gospel as a uh, work uh, of, uh, of Mark sitting at the feet of Peter basically in Rome and writing down the teaching of Peter, I thought, well, we could test this. Now we have something we could actually test. Is our, our Peter's fingerprints on the Gospel of Mark um, you know, evident. And so, I, again, this is one of many investigations I did looking at the scriptures, looking through them to see, are these, do these have the earmarks of what I would say are uh, reliable eyewitness accounts to the degree that we could be certain about any ancient writing being a true eyewitness account? I, I, I recognize the limits of what I'm proposing here. I recognize the limits in terms of even the work of uh, someone like Vincent Bugliosi, the the attorney for the Manson case, who would say that you can't trust any of these documents. They're all hearsay. You could never bring them into court. I mean, I understand the limits, but I think even given those limits, we have a remarkable set of documents given their antiquity. So that's that's what started the whole journey for me. That's really cool. I'm just curious. Then you know, a lot of people, a lot of people that are critical of apologetics will say apologetics and evidence don't bring anybody into the kingdom. But w- would you say that that God really did use uh, evidence and apologetics, to, uh, or at least some of the principles involved in apologetics, to convince you? Yeah, that's one of the things I always say is that you, people always say, "Well, I've never met anybody who who's been uh, you know come to faith as a result of apologetics or an examination of the evidence." And I said, "Well, you know me now. <laughs> you know at least yeah. one person who who uh, actually was uh, you know." compelled to to look deeper and to and so this is why for me i don't have a date that i can point to mm. and say this is my spiritual birthday you know this on this day that i you know stood up in a church service and raised my hand and i'm in it wasn't like that for me it was um a process, process, you know, and it took time. And I do remember, you know, having conversations with my wife, laying in bed and saying, gosh, you know, I'm really close because this is really compelling. And, you know, at one point saying, I think this is just too hard to deny that I feel like this is there's more than enough evidence here for me to, to be beyond what I would call a reasonable doubt threshold. So I, I felt like, you know, I'm, I, I think if I was going to go to church tomorrow, I'd have to say I'm a believer mm. based on where I stood stand today. And so that process, you know, was a number of conversations with my wife. I mean, there were times when I would seek out other uh, new Christians to see or other uh, groups of Christians to see if they could show me anything. Give me some good reason to believe this, you know, because I still have my doubts in certain areas. And I, I found that I had to really, Chris, do the examination for myself because in the end, I was not um, – how shall I, I wasn't really persuaded much by uh, – we had a new believer class. You know, we had a kind of a pseudo-apologetics class at that church. I just – those things, kinds of things were not going to help me. I needed to, to kind of dig through these issues on my own yeah. to get to that place where I had confidence, you know. Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, I've got this this rotation of promos that I play in, in just about every episode of my show where I promote ministries that I commend to my listeners, uh, and yours is one of them. So c- can you tell us a little bit about PleaseConvinceMe.com, how, how and why it is that you started it, what it's all about, that kind of thing? 
Yeah, well, first of all, that's very humbling, and I and I'm always uncomfortable with, and I'm really uncomfortable now that I have a book, you know, because <laughs> as an atheist, I I always felt like, is this really all about, is this about the truth, or is it about this Christian trying to get his, you know, trying to get make a name for himself or make a dollar, or you know, I've always been very skeptical of people. That, by the way, serves you really well when you're a cop, right? You <laughs> yeah. Suspect the worst in everybody. You're got a better chance of catching crooks and going home alive. But 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 the, the for me, uh, when I came to faith. I eventually wanted to to know as much as I could know in a, in a broad uh, category of subjects, right? So, uh, I, I wanted to go to seminary, and it was it, and and it took me a couple of years to get started, and then it took me seven years to finish. But once I finally did that, I started uh, working as a youth pastor and then as a lead pastor, and and as I went through that process, uh, I decided that every talk that I would give in my church setting, whether it was a youth group or in an adult church setting, would be a talk that is rooted deeply in apologetics. Mm. And uh, at first, I would uh, collect these talks, and then eventually we started a website, and I deposited these talks on the website. But at some point, uh, the website kind of became the thing that drove the talks. You know, it wasn't, it was, I wasn't quite sure week to week if it was my congregational need that was driving uh, the article creation that then became a part of the website, or if it was the website need that was driving the article creation that then became a part of the talk. You know, you're kind of going back and forth. And so this, the what, please convince me website is simply a, a cat, a list of, of, well, not sermons, but you know, talks in, in in various categories related to the evidence that I was examining, and and some of this was driven by my own personal search. You know, if I needed to have an answer in a in particular category, for example, the entire dualism section, I needed to dig through those issues for myself. Mm. Um, and then as I dug through them, I wrote about them, I, I, pre- I, you know, I preached on them to, to my group, taught on them to my group, and then posted them online. So so that's kind of how that uh, website developed. Yeah. Well, and, and your ministry isn't just limited to pleaseconvinceme.com anymore. Uh, since the last time that I interviewed you, um, from what I understand, you've become an official part of the team over at Stand to Reason, which is a ministry that I know you and I both are big fans of. C- can you tell us about how you got involved with uh, STR and what your role is there? Yeah, I, I I love the fact that I'm now part of Stand to Reason, um, and it came about just um, organically. I, I was working as a youth pastor, and I met this guy who was a young guy who had just started working for Stand to Reason. I was a, familiar with Stand to Reason because it was an important part of my early journey uh, because I, I didn't know Christians that had really thought through some of the issues the way that Greg had thought through the issues at Stand to Reason. I wasn't as familiar with that kind of Christian. And so when I first heard Greg on the radio, you know, that was really powerful for me to um, to, to hear somebody who could who, who has had a, an approach that was very philosophical, very rational. So I knew of his ministry. And then I met this young guy named Brett Kunkel, and, <laughs> and Brett was a guy who was working in youth ministry, um, and he was a, um, a speaker, and he had, a, had been a youth pastor himself, and um, as a result... He, you know, he wanted to, um, to to get involved with Stand a Reason, and and to, to start speaking to other youth groups. So we, we hired him to come to our to our camp. Mm-hmm. I was a youth pastor. I hired him. I got to know to know Brett, and before long, we're taking trips together to Utah. And then this kind of blossomed, and it was from that connection to Brett that I then reengaged Greg and met Greg, and then this relationship started. And are kind of working together on different kinds of trips, like the Berkeley trip, which we created together to teach my youth group how to deal with philosophical issues, you know, with, with issues related to atheism. 
And uh, we created this trip to Berkeley, and now Brett's been doing this with Stand to Reason for several years now. And so I've always kind of had, you know, one foot in both areas. <laughs> and so now, finally, as I'm getting ready to finish this law enforcement career, I'm able to go and start with Stand to Reason. So I'm really happy to be part of that. Yeah, that's really awesome. Well, but then with all these different balls that you're juggling, and, and we haven't talked about all of them, what is it that made you decide to take on what is no doubt a very time-consuming task of writing a book? What gap, uh, so to speak, in, in the world of apologetics, apologetics literature did you see waiting to be filled, and what motivated you to try to fill it? Yeah, I wish I could say that I, I saw this, you know, be huge gaping need, and I thought Jim Wallace is the one to fill it. But that's <laughs> unfortunately, or probably fortunately, is not what how it happened. I, you know, I, I take the view I take toward these issues is is evidential, and and it's um, it comes out of years and years of doing cold cases with circumstantial evidence, and I just developed a certain approach to trying to determine what happened at this point in the past in this particular case, and I'm not going to have you know the kinds of evidence that people typically think of as solid evidence, mm. and I don't, I don't have that kind of evidence. So I learned how to make cases another way. And, and as I would uh, take this same approach and start applying it to issues in, uh, in determining the reliability of the Bible, I would start teaching this to different groups. And I was with Brett and Sean McDowell on a trip to Berkeley, and we were teaching, and they asked me, would you do a talk on um, you know, the reliability of the Bible? So I think I put this talk together really for the first uh, – it was pretty close to the first time I think I ever did that talk. And I, I taught it, and uh, Sean McDowell said, yeah, man, you need to write a book about this. <laughs> and I said, gosh, I just don't – I'm in the middle of, at that time, I think, four cases that were still active. And I just don't know how in the world I'm going to have time to write a proposal. But I, we, we banged one out, and uh, it took it on a life of its own. And before long, I had a publisher who was interested and – and off it goes, and then we got it published, and now it's finally releasing. I wrote it over a year ago. Um, I finished it over a year ago, and uh, it's been you know, in the, the process of being published until now. So now it finally releases January 1st, but it wasn't as though I said, hey, I see this uh, you know, huge need. I, I don't think that you're going to see any material in this book that's new. I think the facts are the facts. It's like any set of evidences. But every time you have a case that silly has, let's say, let's say it has 10 pieces of evidence, and it's been sitting there for 30 years, depending on who you hire as the attorney for the defense or for the prosecution and who it is you employ as the detective, something different is going to happen with those 10 pieces of evidence. And it's going to be a different set of eyes, a different, a different approach. The defense is going to have one view of what those 10 pieces mean. The prosecution is going to have another view of what those 10 pieces mean. The evidence won't change over the years that go by. But depending on who you bring to the case, you get a different view of the case. So I think what I try to do is I, I come in and I say, hey, there's nothing new under the sun, and there's nothing new about the pieces that I've assembled here. But I think the way you're going to see them assembled is um, is different in the sense that I, I try to assemble in the same way I would a cold case in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's what I think first got to do. you got to teach jurors about rules of evidence. And we tried to do that in the book. We tried to say, hey, let's – Let's teach um, the, the rules of evidence first and then see if these rules can be applied to what we're going to assemble and making a cumulative circumstantial case for the Gospels. 
Yeah, so th- that's a good segue into starting to talk about some of the details in the book. Um, because you're right, you know, the, the evidence hasn't changed. Um, but what I think that is really unique in your approach and I think is very powerful is, is you know, you write about the similarities between cold case investigations and, and an examination of Christianity, which I think are very helpful, uh, you know, to get skeptics rethinking things in, in a different light. Um, and, and you write about this in a way that sort of sets the stage for the whole book. So tell us about the, the various similarities that you see between cold case investigations and the truth claims of Christianity. Yeah, I think there are some, you know, but what I, what I try to do, what I have to do, I'm employed to do this every day, is to take a case, something that happened in the distant past, sometimes it's, thir- my cases are usually like 1979, I think of the most recent case I've done is like 1988, so they're in that range, you know, of, of about 10 years in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, the most of my last case I just did was 1981. So you have this event in the distant past, I don't have any living eyewitnesses who can say, I saw the crime occur and I saw him do it, so we have no direct eyewitness evidence in that sense. If we did, it wouldn't be cold. I mean, mm. this, is, this is the nature of cold cases. We don't have, uh, I've never had a case anyway in which I had any kind of forensic evidence. I mean, I've never had a case I made with DNA. I never had a case I made with a fingerprint. I mean, these things are present in my cases, but they're not critical to the identification of the, of the murderer. This is another reason why they're cold. So I don't have that either. So I have, I'm missing the things that most people would say are critical to making a case. And I can tell you that every case we do that gets national attention on a show like Dateline, the first thing that the you know that Keith Morrison is going to want to ask me is, you know, but you don't really have any real evidence here. You know, you don't. This is just circumstantial. And the last thing we just filmed about a month ago, we did a case, and he hasn't gone even on TV yet. Uh, that's one of the first things he said, because he recognizes that the culture does not see the kind of evidence that we typically bring in front of a jury as powerful evidence. They'll say it's just circumstantial. But Chris, I'm here to tell you that virtually everything, except for an eyewitness who can say, I saw Jim kill her, is going to be circumstantial. If I've got the suspect's DNA on her body, well, what if he says I've been dating her for three years, I've been sleeping with her every night, my DNA should be there, I slept with her last night. The circumstances will mitigate the nature of the DNA. So to have a piece of direct evidence that is really uh, beyond the scope of anyone's examination related to the circumstances is very rare in any case. We're dealing with circumstantial evidence almost all the time. Yeah. So the question here is, can you make a case, if I don't have direct evidence, if I don't have physical evidence, if I don't have the kinds of things you typically think of, can I still make a case? And I'm here to tell you that yes, you can. You can make it. I do it every every day in court. We make these cases year after year after year. They're completely circumstantial, but they're made on a cumulative circumstantial case in which we are finally done looking at all the pieces. The only reasonable inference is the conclusion we're trying to argue for. And that's what we try to do in in cold cases. I think something very similar can be uh, done with the uh, claims of Christianity in the first century, an event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence. But again, we're going to make a strong cumulative circumstantial case, and it's going to stand or fall. Uh, the great thing about circumstantial evidence is it can't lie to you. Mm. There are times when, when witnesses, direct evidence, they will lie to you. Yeah, They'll just have a motive to lie. And that's one of the things we're going to examine in the book, right? Are, are the, are the uh, apostles, are the disciples liars? So we're going to have to examine those issues too. But I think that the great thing about circumstantial evidence is it is what it is. You get to assess it. You get to interpret it. But it's not going to intentionally lie to you. You can misinterpret it. But it's not going to intentionally try to deceive you. So in some ways, circumstantial evidence is really superior to some forms of direct evidence. So, 
Well, okay, the thought did just occur to me, though, and if you don't mind, I'll play the devil's advocate yeah, for just absolutely. a moment. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, whatever similarities there are between cold cases and, and the truth claims of Christianity, there certainly there's this glaring difference in that cold cases, as, as you yourself said, you know, you deal with cases that are in the 70s, maybe 80s, maybe a little earlier than that. But there's a huge difference between something like that and something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Do, do you really think that the similarities um, are, are such that the, that the principles that can be applied in cold case investigations really can be applied in something that is alleged to have happened so very long ago? Well, let's put it this way. I, I apply the same techniques to a cold case from 1971 that I would to a cold case from 1921. Mm. So I'm not sure why the distance in time – the question is do we have – um, look, the standard in court is different than the standard is we use for history. Mm. That's clear. That's one thing I try to point out in the book. To, to argue that we have eyewitness accounts in the Gospels that we could bring into court would be stupid. I don't <laughs> argue that, okay? Because what we want to be able to do in court is to have the ability, the, 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 the um, defendant has to have the ability to cross-examine witnesses that come in and testify about anything. So to be able to expose their weaknesses, expose their biases, expose maybe a lie they're telling. And because we don't have, when someone dies from 1921, even if they were interviewed in 1921 and they said, you know, I saw so-and-so do this and this and this, but then they die. Well, now I can't get that testimony in court because that's hearsay. I don't have the ability to cross-examine that deceased witness. Mm. So it's clear that those kinds of things can't come into court. I'm not arguing they should, okay? But the standard for court is high for a reason. We would rather let a hundred guilty people go than falsely convict one innocent person. Sure. So we have a huge high standard for that. But if we apply that high standard to everything else, you could not know anything <laughs> beyond the living generation of eyewitness who, who are available to you. Sure. If you, you couldn't even know, well, you know, uh, uh, my grandpa told me this about what his dad did. Well, is your grandpa here to interview? To cross-examine? No. Well, then we can't trust it. Yeah. So you, can, you can't know anything with certainty if you're going to apply that same standard that we have a high bar for to protect defendants to things about history. I don't think it's a fair standard to apply to historical events. But we're going to take that the, 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 the model and try to work it anyway to show that we think this standard, as much as it could be applied to history, uh, can be applied to the Gospels to test them, and they hold up remarkably well. And that's really what we want to be able to say here. You know, do we have good reason to believe this? Look, I, I, the one thing for sure, Chris, if we were to compare the case we have for the first century event that are just described in the Gospels with the case we have for any other first century event, it's not as though we have really great cases you can make on everything else and a really lousy one with Christianity. As a matter of fact, the case we have with Christianity is about superior to any other first century case you could make. Okay, so I think we've got good because of the the precious nature of the the truth claims were preserved so well by Christians over the generations, right? So I think that that's one of the things we could we could argue is that it's not as though there's a higher standard that's out there that can be met by other ancient documents that the, the, the Christian documents can't meet. I think they meet the standard as well as any ancient Christ, ancient claim of history. So in other words, if we know anything about ancient history, um, we can know whether or not this in fact happened. Well, you at least know that this standard that we're trying to meet for Christianity is as high as you could hope for any ancient standard. You can toss away all of history, not just ancient history. You can toss away any history from 400 years ago. What do we do with claims for which we cannot have living eyewitnesses testify? We have to use the same standard we're using here. I I think uh, people are familiar with the courtroom standards for witnesses, and that's why I think we can run in these lanes and help people see how these things measure up. I think people have a less uh, are less familiar with the techniques that historians use, 
because there's not a lot of popular TV shows out there about historians, <laughs> you know, but there's lots of criminal shows out there. So this is a great way to analogize and to dig through the evidence and make a case for what we believe. Yeah. Okay. Well, now your book is divided in, into two sections, uh, the first of which is designed to help readers learn how to be a detective. And, and I wish that we could go through all 10 of these principles that you write about, but, you know, in the interest of time and so that listeners will be teased into getting a hand, their hands on a copy of their own, we'll talk about just a few of them. Uh, in chapter two, you aim to teach readers how to infer, how to use what you call abductive reasoning. C- can you explain what that is for us and how we can apply it to the claims of Christianity? Yeah, it's a simple process, and I think a lot of uh, philosophers and epistemologists have looked at this and said, you know, we can't trust abduction. It's not, it's, it's unreliable. But I think if you look at what we do in criminal cases, it seems to be a reliable enough process to conv- to find someone guilty of a crime that they may spend the rest of their life in jail for or suffer the death penalty. It's a standard and a process that I think is pretty si- pretty significant. Detectives use it, and I think it's viable. And I think we recognize that each of us has got a skill set in which we've participated in abductive reasoning. All it is is when you walk into any environment and you see several pieces of evidence, you make a list of all the pieces of evidence that are in the room. Uh, of all the, uh, if your if your uh, son comes home and you notice his car is parked kind of uh, crooked at the curb, and he comes in and he smells like alcohol, and you know he looks a little bit uh, bloodshot and watery in his eyes, and he's walking a little funny. Well, you've got four pieces of evidence right there, right? That you could look at. You could list those. Now, he may have a reasonable explanation for those. So you take all the explanations that could be offered, and you list those on a different list. Evidence on one side, possible explanations on the other. Now, as it turns out, as you compare the possible explanations that your kid might offer you about why he looks this way, why the car is parked that way, uh, you will have to look at those explanations and see which is reasonable in light of the four or five pieces of evidence that you observed. Mm. Some will be reason more reasonable than others. In fact, some may be excluded entirely uh, because they aren't reasonable at all. And, and at some point, if there's enough pieces of evidence, you will be able to exclude all but one explanation. And it turns out the one you haven't excluded is the most reasonable inference from the evidence. And that's what we're doing at any time we look at any criminal case. Uh, the defense will say, well, yeah, I see those same 10 pieces of evidence, but I've got an alternative explanation. And the jury has to decide which of the two explanations is the most reasonable in light of the evidence. They're making an inference. And this is what we do in criminal cases. Before, you know, in months before that or years before that, a detective had to do it when determining which suspect best fit the evidence. And we do it – we walk into a crime scene and we decide, is this a homicide at all? Mm. Is it just a death scene? It's a natural, an accidental, or a suicide? We've got to use abduction to determine, is it a homicide? If it is a homicide, which suspect best fits it? If this suspect best fits it, does all the evidence – is it compelling enough to have a jury agree that this is the best inference? So I think we're using this process at every, at every step. And people are really are familiar with it because they've been using it every day whether they think about it or not. With their family, with their coworkers, with their boss, with their employees, you know, we're doing these things all the time. This process we use, we just don't think about it. We haven't categorized it, and we haven't become careful uh, about uh, considering the elements involved: the list of evidences, the list of possible explanations, and carefully going through and crossing out those that are not reasonable. So, I mean, this is a process that I think we have to teach jurors because, in the end, we are going to ask them to make a decision about which explanation is most reasonable. So what, you know, just sort of summarize, you you talk in the book about what has oftentimes been known as the minimal facts uh, approach to the resurrection or whatever. What are the facts, what are the list of evidences that we have to deal with for which we have to look at the competing evidences or competing interpretations? And and how do you think that those facts stand up to the Christian interpretation of that evidence? 
Well, the first thing I've always learned in working these cases is that no explanation is without liabilities. And you'd be a fool to think that, 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 that you have an explanation that has no liabilities. Even as a prosec- on the prosecution side of a case, when I put a case together with 50 pieces of evidence, right, uh, supporting a particular view, uh, 50 pieces of evidence that uh, make the, 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 the best reason, uh, the best explanation for these 50 pieces is the defendant, there's always some liability. There's always something that didn't get answered. Something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me still. You know, why would he do it this way? What did he do with the car afterwards? How did he get rid of the body? You know, these are there's going to be some set of unanswered questions, and those may rise to rise to a level that a jury says, "I just can't get over the unanswered question." There, but we typically will ask jurors, "Do you really think you're going to have every?" And I don't care who gives you an explanation. If we do it or the defense, do you really think that every? Are you the kind of person that's going to have to have every possible doubt answered? Because that's yeah. not the standard. The standard is reasonable doubt, not possible doubt. And if you think you're going to have to have every answer question answered, rather, you're going to we can't have you on our jury. And so I think that even the Christian explanation for the resurrection has a, a liability. And so sometimes what we're doing when we're looking at alternative explanations for any set of evidences. Sometimes we're really looking at, well, gosh, you know, which has the least, um, the, the, the least uh, egregious liability? You know, which, what's, you know, there are some liabilities I can live with. The explanation may not be great. It may be great. But is there some set of liabilities that it has I just can't get over? If there are, then I'm not going to be able to use that as the explanation for, for what happened, right? And so we're looking at this the same, very same way, very similar way. And we're saying, okay, are there some um, liabilities in the Christian explanation, I'll tell you, the liability is pretty clear to me. The liability in the Christian explanation of the resurrection is that it requires a resurrection to be possible <laughs> in the first place, and mm. that requires a supernatural explanation. And it's clear that for some people, that liability is just too great. Sure. And so uh, someone like a Bart Ehrman is going to say, look, when you study history, there is no place, there is no reasonable place for the supernatural. It's like science. Uh, you know, you have to look at only natural explanations, and therefore, when we get to a place where someone makes a supernatural claim about something in the past, we now are out of the category of history and into the category of mythology. So that there's a there's a perspective that begins by saying that that liability is just too much for me to accept. Mm. And I had to ask myself, okay, now every other claim, and I've gone through, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not doing any original work here when I when I share with you. I just wanted to share it in the book in terms of the context of abductive reasoning, right? I didn't, I know that there's great work out there in which people have, um, you know, examined uh, the minimal facts uh, account. Uh, Gary Habermas, uh, Michael Icona have done some great work in this field. I just wanted to examine it in the context of abductive reasoning like a criminal case. And if that's the case and I'm the investigator and somebody says, well, couldn't it have happened this way? Okay, let's write that down. And now that we've got it written down, let's take a look and say, okay, what are the liabilities to that explanation? Are those liabilities within the range of reason or are they too much to to overcome? If they're too much to overcome, we've got to take that explanation and shelve it for now. And so if we're looking at it and saying, well, gosh, is it possible that they were just, you know, wrong about, uh, you know, about Jesus, that they, you know, were not, uh, uh, you know, they're mistaken about his death. He just, he just was injured. Is it a matter of them being an elaborate conspiracy that they lied about the resurrection or they were delusional and only saw a vision or they were fooled by some imposter? You can go on and on hmm. and you can list all the possible explanations. And then you got to look at the liabilities for each explanation. And as I look through all of these, 
um, most of the liabilities for the explanations is they don't because they don't explain all the evidence except for one explanation, which is the Christian explanation, which has this terrible liability of requiring <laughs> the supernatural. And then I had to stop and ask yourself, okay, wait a minute. If you simply dropped the presupposition that nothing supernatural can happen, how does how does this stack up? How do these explanations then stack up? Yeah, because if you're examining whether or not Jesus resurrected from the dead in order to determine if something supernatural could exist, you cannot begin by saying that nothing supernatural can exist. Right. So, I mean, if you just drop that liability for just one second, it turns out that that explanation offered by the apostles actually addresses every piece of evidence in the room. And, and it, of course, it requires that he rise from the dead. But every other liability you see in all the other explanations and in their inability to address every piece of evidence, this one explanation addresses every piece of evidence. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, well, okay, am I resisting here because I feel like the case is too weak, or am I resisting here because I feel like I don't want to take a step towards supernaturalism? And that's where you really got to – that's why the first chapter in the book is really about those presuppositions, right? right? How do we enter an investigation devoid of presuppositions that will dictate the conclusion? And that's one of the things we got to kind of work through as investigators. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, do I think, Chris, that this in and of itself will would, would have been necessarily compelling for me as a um, as an as a seeker, as a skeptic? You know, I'm very careful about uh, trying to claim that I wrote this book to prove you know Christianity <laughs> is true. Mm-hmm. I've never said that. Uh, I, I know there's a difference between evidence and proof, and I can all I can do is provide evidence. You know, I. I I, I, I can say it, that this evidence rises to a level that I think is beyond a reasonable doubt, and I hope that jurors, when I present a case, will agree. But in the end, whether or not it's proving anything is really in the the assessment of the juror. Sure. So I, and I can't control that. Yeah. So I think what you do is you present the evidence as best you can. Do I have an opinion about the evidence right now? Absolutely. I'm not opinionless in this. I believe the evidence points in a certain direction. Like in a criminal case, I'm not opinionless. I believe the evidence – I wouldn't arrest this guy and drag him through this process if I didn't think he was guilty. And I think the evidence brought me to that point where I made a decision on the basis of the evidence that he's guilty, and then I started this process. So it's clear that when I'm presenting – I'm trying to present though as carefully as I can both sides of this, but I guarantee you if you're a skeptic who's resisting the claims of Christianity, you'll be able to find something – to take exception to in any work of any um, author of any apologist. Sure. So, I mean, you just do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about jurors then. In in Chapter 4, you explain how it is that jurors are encouraged to uh, evaluate the reliability of witnesses. What what are some of the kinds of questions that jurors need to ask uh, when they're evaluating the reliability of witnesses? And and what answers do we find when we ask those same kinds of questions uh, of the eyewitnesses whose testimonies we find in the New Testament? Yeah, and for me, this is really the thing that got me into studying uh, the claims of Christianity deeply. I mean, I had this tool set that I just talk about in the first second, uh, part of the book, you know, these 10 tools. I had that tool set in place, but it was really the examination of the claims of the authors that really uh, brought me to a point where I had to say, you know, what, what, what do I make of this? What What is the best inference about, you know, can I trust these eyewitnesses? So I think that the way we evaluate witnesses moves us from an evaluation of circumstantial evidence to an evaluation of direct eyewitness testimony, 
And that's something we have to be – now, look, some people will say, well, the claims – the gospel writers never claim to be eyewitnesses in the first place. You know, this is – these are not claim, these are not eyewitness accounts. But I think if – you know, that you have to deny uh, certain elements of authorship, Chris. you got to deny certain connectivity between, say, First Peter and what the contributions of Peter into the Gospel of Mark, uh, certain authorship issues between First uh, John and the Gospel of John. You've got to deny certain – because there are places clearly in the letters where these authors are claiming to be eyewitnesses. Witnesses, mm. and then you have these accounts that uh, describe what Jesus did, what Jesus said. So it's really, I mean, in order to make the claim that there is no connection, these are not eyewitnesses; they never claim to be. Um, is is I think number one, I don't think it's consistent internally with Scripture, and two, I don't think it's internally it's it's uh, consistent with the history in which people like Papias uh, say that no, Mark is recording the eyewitness account of Peter, who's describing everything that Jesus said and did, but Mark is not being all that careful about order. He simply wanted to make sure he was accurate. He's not putting it in any particular historical order. So that's an early claim of the church, and it's repeated often uh, by the early church fathers. About the authorship of Mark, so I think that it's it's at least reasonable for us to apply some of the standards we would for eyewitnesses to um, the claims of the Gospels. And uh, there's a number of questions I've listed in the book here in the state of California that jurors are instructed to be able to think about as they're assessing the reliability of eyewitnesses. And these questions I break down into four large categories. They're allowed to ask and assess: Was that eyewitness really there? There are some people who just want the fame of being an eyewitness, and they weren't even present at the time of actual crime. I had a case – my dad had a case back in the 70s in which a suspect confessed, and he wasn't even there at the time of the crime. So you have to really assess, you know, is this a person who actually was present? And two, you got to say, well, look, is there any way we could take a look at some of the, uh, the the claims of this witness and corroborate them in some way? So we're looking at, you know, um, are they is there any way to corroborate them? Um, you know, are they verified by any outside source? Uh, is there something on the outside of, well, for example, if an eyewitness says, I saw this robbery occur and the robber came over and leaned across the counter and pointed the gun in his face. Well, did he touch the counter? Yeah, I touched the counter right there. Well, I should be able to print the counter now and find the fingerprints of the suspect. And that those fingerprints would at least corroborate the statements of the eyewitness. So we're looking for things that are on the outside that may corroborate. And sometimes it's just another, another eyewitness account. Hmm. The second eyewitness says something similar to the first. Then you've got to ask yourself, especially in cold cases, are these accounts that I have now, if I um, – if I, this happens a lot. You know, you get an eyewitness, and uh, he makes a statement back in 1979, and then you go to court, and you, how do I know that that statement if it is going to be the same? Is it accurate? Or how about this? Uh, a crime occurs in 1979, and it's, it's worked for years and never solved. But in 1985, somebody um, uh, makes a statement that I was actually present in 1979. How do I know his statement in 85 is accurate? to what he actually saw in 1979. How do I know that in those six years he hasn't imagined some change in what he saw? This happens a lot in cold cases. A witness is discovered late who claims to have been there many years ago but is now giving you account. And how do you know it hasn't been corrupted? How do you know it's accurate? Yeah. And that's the category we have to assess in eyewitnesses, especially in cold cases. And finally, how do I know if the person who's testifying isn't trying to lie to me because he's got some reason to get the guy in jail, some bias that's motivating his testimony? i got to be able to assess bias. So those are the four categories that I think it's fair for us and right for us to examine eyewitnesses in. And I, I kind of list the, the, the larger groups of questions we allow jurors to think about. And then I've categorized them in those four groups. And then I look at the Gospels in those four categories and to say, hey, do these measure up? Uh, and, and what kind of a case would it be? Now, keep in mind, when we're assessing witnesses, 
we sometimes make a circumstantial cumulative case about their reliability. In other words, we would say, well, you can trust Jim's testimony for these five reasons. And you give five reasons to the jury why you can trust his testimony. Well, those five reasons are typically circumstantial reasons to trust Jim. And the more cumulative they are, if I had six reasons, that'd be better than five. If I had 15 reasons, that'd be better than six. The more cumulative they are, the more reason I have to trust Jim in that one area. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're saying, can we build a circumstantial case for the reliability of these eyewitnesses on the four criteria I just gave you? And that's the the whole second half of the book is looking at uh, how we would just go about doing that. Okay. All right. Well, what about the the chain of custody that you talk about in Chapter 8? How how do we examine a chain of custody, and and, and how does this apply to the New Testament? Yeah, I think this is probably the one area that I get the most um, interest in from from people who are – you know, when I wrote the book, um, I was flat honored to even have the opportunity to write a book. I don't see myself as um, a a first-tier apologist for sure. I have my heroes too, probably like you. Yeah. There's lots of people who are working in this field who I look up to and I go, wow, I'm not a J.P. Moore. I'm not a William Lane Craig. I'm not a Paul Copan. I'm not, I'm not any of these folks. I'm just a guy who works cold cases. And so when I first wrote the book, I wanted to make sure that I, I vetted it. I had people read it. And, and the most uh, response I got was really in this area of, of, uh, of chain of custody. Um, and so I had people like um, uh, Craig Hazen, um, uh, Paul Copan, J.P. Moreland, um, uh, Lee Strobel, um, Sean and Josh McDowell, uh, Greg Kogel. These are all folks who read the book before it ever went to the editor. And I wanted them to, to make sure that I, number one, I don't want to write a check I can't cash. <laughs> uh, that's, that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I was because I thought, well, the lanes I'm running in here are different enough that I just, you just have to kind of uh, experience them as a detective to see how they work. But I wanted to make sure that the people saw that the, that the chain of custody is powerful because what happens in a chain of custody – uh, imagine a, a case, a criminal case, in which a uh, crime occurs 30 years ago, and uh, then we get to trial, and in trial, somebody brings in a shell casing, and they say, this is the casing from the crime scene. How do you know that's the casing from the crime scene? Yeah. How do you know that wasn't just dropped in property 10 years after the fact? It could have happened that way, and I suppose there have been cases when that was the case. Some faulty piece of evidence, maybe accidentally, maybe it got bumped over from a different uh, a, a bin in the property room, and suddenly I've got some evidence in my case that wasn't supposed to be there. How do I know if that's really what was there in the beginning? Something similar happens in uh, claims about Christianity. You have a claim. Well, first of all, is it early enough to have even been an eyewitness? We've got to do some to work on early dating. But if it, even if we could say it was early enough to have been the, written by somebody who was actually present at the time, how do we know it wasn't corrupted you know, 150 years later, and the poor itinerant uh, uh, rabbi, Jesus, who's a good teacher but nothing more, is now a miracle-working uh, son of God who rose from the dead? Well, we do the same thing we do in criminal cases. We go back at the crime scene and we ask ourselves, is there a chain of custody that puts the shell casing at the crime scene and then tells you what it looked like, and then you see it again a year later at the crime lab. It tells you what it looks like. It's the same casing. Then you see it two years later being handled by, you know, there's a, a signed uh, tr- trail. Every time a detective or an officer or a criminalist touches it and books it back in the property, and you can trace its movement over time from the crime scene all the way to the courtroom. Can you do something similar with the testimony related to Jesus? You know, how do you know? That what Irenaeus says about Jesus in 185 A.D. is the same thing that John said about Jesus when he wrote the original document. 
How do you know it hasn't been changed? How do you know Irenaeus himself didn't change it and create the Jesus we know today? Well, you've got to go back to chain of custody. Do you have a Polaroid? You know, I know that's what we used to use back before we had digital cameras. People would take Polaroids at the crime scene. And those were the first images you'd have of a crime scene because nobody had, you know, could wait for the film to be developed, right? Mm. So do you have a Polaroid of the thing you're examining, in this case, the story about Jesus, that you can then take with you to court and say, here's a picture of the casing from the actual crime scene. And on there you see the, the signed name of the officer who picked up the casing. So we can say that's probably pretty good evidence that it was actually there and collected by that officer. Do we have anything like that for the, the, the story about Jesus? And as it turns out, I think we do. John had three students. Uh, the work of those three students, two still remains. We know that John taught Papias, uh, Ignatius, and Polycarp. And it turns out that Ignatius and all three of these gentlemen became leaders in the church, but we still have uh, seven letters from Ignatius and one letter from Polycarp. We can see how the very first person that John handed off the information to, we can see how they describe Jesus. Do they describe Jesus the same way as John does? Or do they describe Jesus the same way as Irenaeus does? Because guess what? They had students themselves. Hmm. They had a, they, their, their student was, in fact, Irenaeus. So we, we can trace the description of Jesus from John to his students to their students to their students. And we get all the way to Hippolytus and before we lose that trail from John. And you can look at the snapshot, the Polaroid that's taken of Jesus at every single piece of the chain of custody. And the problem you're going to have if you're a skeptic who believes that the story of Jesus was, was fabricated late in history, you're going to have a problem because even the non-canonical documents of the early church who were given to them uh, you know, by John, John teaching um, Ignatius and Polycarp, describe Jesus the same way we know him today. He's a miracle worker who rose from the dead, who claimed to be God. And that's the form of Jesus that most skeptics want to reject. I mean, they don't really care, was it, you know, 5,000 people he fed with the fish or 4,999. What they really hate is the, the, the description of Jesus that's supernatural. Yeah. And that's the thing we want to test. Does the chain of custody support that form of Jesus? It does. It does early, and it's not just with, with John. You can form a chain of custody from Paul through Clement and Linus and all the popes. You can follow a chain of custody from Peter to Mark to the North African bishops, you know, all the way to the um, Council of Laodicea through Eusebius. So you can form a chain of custody looking, because we have at least enough knowledge to know who is the teacher and student repeatedly through history that passes along the information about Jesus. And we can stop wherever possible and look at their writing to see if it's the same Jesus. Yeah. You know, I think it, it strikes me that this is really powerful because one of the common skeptical objections that's raised is uh, the idea that uh, a, a Jesus myth developed over the over the centuries. And while I could for while I could imagine, uh, you know, a couple of centuries after the time of Christ, people looking at the Gospels and uh, or, or looking at whatever early traditions they had before them and developing a myth out of them, it becomes much harder to believe that that's what the very disciples of John would have done with what John taught them and that their disciples would have done that with what they taught them, you know. So in other words, this this teacher, this disciple discipler relationship, I think, uh, really lends itself to uh, demonstrating that this wasn't a myth that developed over time, but that this was present from the very beginning. Yeah, and also I think it's uh, you're absolutely right, and I think it also acts as a good piece of circumstantial evidence to support our claims of early dating too. So, for example, we make a case for early dating, and I make that case in one of the chapters of the book, but I don't use 
the teacher-student relationship to make that case. But it turns out that the student-teacher relationship supports the case for early dating because the story that that Ignatius and Polycarp has about Jesus, they have access to that story very early. Mm. And, they're, and, they're, and they're writing about the same Jesus by 110 A.D. So it turns out that we could actually add the student-teacher relationships to the case for early dating as well. As a matter of fact, I think... If, if the case for early dating is powerful and it's true, then almost every other objection of the skeptic, of my, my own skeptical objections, are much harder to hold on to hmm. because early dating erases a lot of the supposed problems that skeptics raise related to the Gospels. Because what do you do? How do you mask this lie if the eyewitnesses are still available to call it out? Hmm. So unless you do it, then you've got to say, well, okay, it's, it's early, but it's not in the same region. It's some other region where the witnesses had no access. And I think you have to get more and more abstract. <laughs> and this is one of the things I did in the last of the ten chapters on the principles of investigations. I talk about what you should expect from defense attorneys because it's so important. We see the same thing with any kind of objector to any truth claim. And in court, of course, it's an objector to the claims of the prosecution. That's the defense attorney. And he's going to use a – I think that sometimes Christians are shocked that that, that – um, um, that, that skeptics can offer a reasonable-sounding objection or a reasonable-sounding uh, alternative story. Mm. But, folks, this happens every day in court. Yeah. I've never had a case where the, the defense attorney said, well, gosh, you know, at the end of that, we, we give up <laughs> because that just makes too dang much sense. We, there's the, what can we say? It's clearly, he's right, we're wrong. That's not going to happen. Instead, they're going to make an impassioned, articulate reasonable sounding defense and the the jury's going to have to kind of look at both of these things and say well they may both sound reasonable but only one really is right so we've got to kind of weigh through that but don't be surprised that both sides are going to offer something that sounds reasonable only one of the two is going to be though so we got to figure that out yeah well you know so you, you talked about uh early dating which which you can correct me if i'm wrong but that's sort of what you talk about in the first chapter of your second section of the book where you ask the question were they present uh yes. and 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 you make a case for why we can trust that these are in fact uh, these are dated early the, the second chapter in that section though that i wanted to discuss asks the question were they corroborated and, and you hinted at this earlier in the conversation you know we see this question discussed all the time in apologetic literature in debates and stuff like that um and you know no matter how early and reliable the eyewitness accounts contained in the Gospels are, I'm willing to admit that my confidence would certainly be bolstered by the existence of extra-biblical confirmation of the existence of Jesus and some of the things that the Gospels say about him. So just what do we find outside the New Testament? Were Jesus' eyewitnesses' accounts corroborated to any extent by others outside of the Bible? Yeah, but I don't think it's as maybe as deep as some uh, I've written. I've you know I've read myself like like you probably have lots of apologetics books where uh, to their to their credit the apologist will come in and say I'm going to show you everything that's ever been you know written and they'll they'll bring up writings from the second third fourth fifth century that are usually describing the um, the lifestyles and cultures of Christians without really specifically pointing to Jesus. Hmm. I, I try to be careful here to limit what we're going to talk about to just the first century because let's face it if I'm looking if someone could say something in the second century who cares yeah that clearly they're not part of the eyewitness group and not only that there's not even a living eyewitness in the second century probably at least if you get too far into that century um, that's going to be able to say hey he's lying you know <laughs> this isn't true so I think the most powerful evidence we're going to find is going to have to be in the first century and that's going to eliminate a lot of the sources that sometimes apologists will bring into this to make a case I do think there's enough um, now look also you got to remember that um, for the most part, um, 
to say that I have to have um, non-biblical support for these claims is to deny the historicity of the Gospels first. Right. Okay, so we, I don't think we, we, I have to have a bunch of non-biblical uh, information in order to, to to know that these are true. But like you said, I do want to see is it in some way corroborated, or is there some red flag that says, oh, this is you know, silence is not going to be a red flag for me, but a counterclaim I have to examine. Mm. So this is true in any evidential case. Silence is not going to necessarily be a deal killer for a jury. If the other side doesn't say anything and the only only has one explanation for it, that's not going to kill you. But if you've got a counter explanation, you've got to be able to examine it and see is it is it true. So what happens here is I look at this and I say, okay. I see several uh, first century sources that I think are legitimately in play. Josephus, Thallus, Tacitus, Phlegon, uh, Marbar, Serapan. These are, are, are sources I think we could look at and examine. Now, many skeptics have said, well, you can't trust some of these. Thallus, for example, all you have is Julius Africanus, a Christian who is uh, quoting the work of Thallus. Why would you uh, you know, trust that? You have lost the original work of Thallus. That, that's off the table. But I think the way that Julius Africanus quotes it as a skeptic who's saying that Thallus is wrong, is powerful. If Julius Africanus was going to be making up the testimony of Thallus, I suspect he would have him agree with all counts of the Christian narrative, rather than be complaining about how he doesn't agree with all counts of the Christian narrative. So there are some ways in which the testimony is brought in that I think make them more legitimate. And given the antiquity of these accounts, I'm surprised we find anything, especially if we're going to look at like archaeology. You know, I talk about how this this idea of fractions, and it wasn't my idea, I'm quoting somebody else here, the idea that, you know, we only have a fraction of what's available archaeologically, and on those digs, only a fraction have been truly investigated, and those investigated digs, only a fraction of the evidence has actually been drawn out and categorized. It's all a matter of fractions. So the fact that we have any archaeological support to the depth that we do, Consider, for example, another claim of the Book of Mormon. Hmm. You've got a whole Book of Mormon series of claims that have zero architectural or archaeological support. Zero. And here we have our claims in the New Testament for which there is abundant archaeological support, but clearly not everything is, is supported archaeologically. Sure. It's only a fraction is supported because that's the nature of archaeology. It's a, it's a science of fractions. So uh, I look at the accounts of Josephus, Tacitus, Phlegon, uh, Thallus, uh, Marabar, uh, Marabar, Serapion, and I'm asking, what if we didn't have any Christian documents, but we simply had the words of those men, what would we know about Jesus? And now I, I try to address in the book why some skeptics have tried to reject the works of Tacitus, reject the works of Thallus. I've tried to go through that fairly. Because I had the same concerns. And I think if we were in a court of law, those concerns about a witness would be, would be valid. So I try to address those concerns in the book. But I think in the end, they give what I kind of look at as um, unintended and unintentional and kind of a reluctant uh, eyewitness support. In other words, there are times in a case where you'll ask for certain things from a witness, uh, even a suspect, and they will not confess to the crime. And you're looking for a confession, and they don't confess. And you'll say, I know you were in that building. No, I wasn't in that, you know. Well, I've got a video showing you were in that building. Well, yeah, I was in that building, but I wasn't there to commit a crime. I was just there doing some business. And so they reluctantly put themselves in the building, although they still deny the thing you're looking for, which is their confession of doing the crime. Hmm. But they do give you some reluctant set of facts that support the claims that you actually know. I think these witnesses, Josephus, Tacitus, Phlegon, Marbar, Serapan, and Thallus, actually give us reluctant information about Jesus that makes it very powerful. 
So when 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 Thales says that uh, you know he does not believe that he he thinks that the darkness at the point of the crucifixion is caused by an eclipse of the sun, he's having to reluctantly admit that there isn't a crucifixion of Jesus that's taking place there. Yeah. So he gives you this data: Jesus apparently lived, was crucified on a cross, and there was darkness at the point of the crucifixion. Three pieces of data that you got reluctantly from the testimony of Thales. So I make a list of all the things you could know reluctantly from those five first century writers and that list is pretty powerful it you know so i think it does describe a, a jesus that's very very similar to the jesus we know sure. so if you lost every other biblical account and early non-canonical account of the church fathers you still would know something about jesus a guy who lived in judea was virtuous had wondrous power could predict the future as a wise king of the jews he was accused by jewish leaders and crucified by pilate and, and you know he, he it, the crucifixion occurred during the reign of tiberius and darkness and an earthquake occurred and he reportedly rose after the death and it was believed to be the messiah and he was called the christ and his followers were called christians and some interesting mischievous superstition spread throughout the kingdom what could that have been probably the resurrection, but we don't know that for sure. But the point is, that's a Jesus that sounds awfully a lot like the Jesus of Scripture, and we're getting it from reluctant witnesses. Yeah, which is which is what is so powerful, because if these weren't reluctant witnesses, and if these were people who embraced the truth of Christianity, of course, skeptics are going to think that they're just biased and are just lying about what they're saying. You know, So the fact that they're being reluctant about it and that they're not outright believers in Christ, I think, says something very powerful. Yeah, and I think that you, you, you hit it perfectly because I, I, I think what, what this all begins with is a complete um, reluctance to, to see the Gospels as reliable history of any kind. Now, I'm okay with that. I want to accept that skepticism up front. That's why we're writing four chapters to show its reliability. But in the end, we have to admit – I kind of close with this in this section, You know, this idea, this complaint that I hear all the time. You can't trust the Gospels because they're written by Christians. That statement I hear all the time, yeah, and that is a silly statement to make, uh, given that if – and I compare it to a, a robbery case you might work where somebody sees uh, someone come in the, the – I actually had a case like this where uh, a, a um, robber comes in the bank, standing in line, getting ready to do the robbery. He is w- seen by a, a, an assistant manager who's sitting at a desk who happens to recognize him from high school. And before this manager can get up and, and say, hey, how's it going, he goes to the counter and he starts to commit a robbery. And, and the assistant manager was shocked because never thought of this person as a bank robber. And sure enough, now he, she sees he's committing a bank robbery. Yeah. And if I was to come into that bank and ask for eyewitnesses, could I have to discount her because she clearly already believes he's a he's she's you might say, um, you know, uh, she, he's a bank. She's a bank robbery. And, you know, she's somebody like a Christian who believes that, that Jesus is the Messiah. She believes that guy's a bank robber, but she only believes it because she witnessed a bank robbery. She didn't begin with that belief. As a matter of fact, she did not see him as any kind of bank robber when he first walked in. It's right. what he did that convinced her. And so I think the Gospels have the same kind of flavor. It's what Jesus did that convinced Matthew. He doesn't begin as a Christian. He ends up as a Christian. And that is something you can trust. I mean, that, that you shouldn't disqualify an eyewitness just because they come to a conclusion on the basis of what they saw. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so many times in courtroom, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff, the uh, the prosecutor will ask the person on the stand, would you please identify the person that you saw, you know, committing this crime or whatever? And if the skeptic, if skepticism of the Gospels were legitimate by virtue of the fact that they're written by people who believed in Jesus, well, then you would have to, dis- you would never be able to ask somebody in the courtroom to identify the, the person they saw commit the crime because they believe that the person committed the crime, right? But Absolutely. of course, the reason they believe it is because they saw it happen. 
and then you would think that the same kind of standard would apply to the Gospels. Well, in any case, so this is some really good stuff. But before we move on and begin to wrap up, I do want to ask just another sort of devil's advocate question. Yeah. Um, you know, I've appreciated works uh, like Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You know, you've, met, you've mentioned the, the, the McDowells. Uh, I've appreciated The Case for Christ, and you mentioned Lee Strobel. Uh, I've appreciated these works and others, but I can sympathize a little bit with skeptics who think that they're sort of preaching to the choir. Uh, that is to say, they're going to be convincing to those who already believe, but they're not going to substantially challenge skeptics. So the question I have for you is, do you think that skeptics might say something similar about your book? Is it is it primarily believers whose faith is going to be bolstered by your book, or do you think that skeptics might find it a little bit challenging as well? Well, there's no doubt I think that the group that will be the most um, – both will I hope both will occur, but I'm, I'm realistic. I'm going to share in this book, and what I've done in this book is try to share with people – I don't really care if they're skeptics or Christians. It doesn't really matter. I'm just sharing the truth of my personal journey through this set of evidences. And I don't share it really as a personal narrative. You know what I mean? I'm not like saying, well, then I did this and then I did that. But I I am sharing the stuff that I thought was powerful. And I was somebody who was moved by the evidence. There may be somebody else out there who will see this evidence and be similarly moved. But I recognize, and I say this in the book, and I don't say it to be trite or to be demeaning to skeptics, because I still feel as though I am very skeptical. I'm not skeptical, if I'm honest with you, I'm always more skeptical of people still than I am skeptical of these truth claims. Um, so, I mean, that's my own f- failing. I'll just tell you up front. I just, that's just the way, as a cop, that's the way I'm wired. Um, I wouldn't uh, be trusting of me either. Uh, I would want to dig through just as the, I, I don't think I found anything new when I dug through the evidence myself, then somebody would have taught me in an apologetics class if I had attended one, but I wasn't about to trust them for it. You know, I only wanted to trust myself for it. That's my own arrogance, my own pride, whatever it may be. But there are three reasons why anyone shuns the truth. And I use that word shun to kind of make a point of it. One is rational, the other is emotional, and one is volitional. And I think for, for me, uh, the evidence was pretty powerful, but I was resisting this for volitional reasons, probably more than anything else. Yeah. I don't want – if you're your own God today, why in the world would you want to embrace anybody else's God? If you're the arbiter of what is true and virtuous and right – what is beautiful, what is holy, why would you want to have to embrace somebody else's version if it might challenge your own? Right. So I understand why there might be some resistance to a truth claim. So I don't uh, – and I don't say that to say, well, you people who don't believe are not being rational. No, I don't, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, that I know that these are issues that are inv- involved in all of us in making decisions. It, it turns out that uh, um, I remember thinking, well, gosh, I'd love to be able to reach – People with please convince me who are like I was, you know, uh, skeptics who uh, could look at the evidence. And but I think what happens is um, you've got to be at a place where the volitional and emotional issues are resolved before you can really examine the rational issues. So when we look at a juror, we want to make sure they have no emotional or volitional reasons. Do you have emotional reactions to redheads? And my defendant in this case is a redhead. Can't be on our jury. Do you have a volitional issue where you hate cops and you can never trust any of the cops? Well, you can't be on our jury. There are reasons why we have to eliminate those kind of, that kind of thinking from the jury pool. And so I think if we were to all say, wow, this is really uh, – the only um, uh, forces in play here were rational forces, it would be a different story. But there are other forces in play here. Some of them are emotional. Some of them are volitional. And those are going to weigh into this. Yes. How much they win is different for each person. So I, to go back to your question, I'm probably spending too much time going <laughs> no, to circle okay. around the answer here. But I think that uh, I'm skeptical of any uh, apologetic work that uh, 
thinks up front that it is going to change the world for Christ because it's going to be a compelling um, reasoning effort that no one's going to be able to say no to. Of course, that's silly. Mm. Uh, I think in the end, those of us who are believers, and there are lots of people who I would describe as accidental believers. They're raised in the church. They happen to hold to the truth, but they hold to it accidentally. You know, yeah. they, haven't, they haven't even examined to see if it actually is true. I'm hoping to, that to, to, to provide a work that, that, that decreases the number of accidental Christians. Okay, that's yeah. one number one. Number two, along the way, I do think there's a, a line of this that would be interesting to those who are skeptics, and are gonna, you know. If, but I, I'll tell you right now, if you are looking for an excuse to not believe any claim, you can find it. This is true on a jury of any. I don't care how strong the case is. If you're sitting on the jury and you're just looking for an excuse to let the guy go or to convict him, you can find one in either direction. So it's really hard to check that and to say, hey, am I really being neutral here? Or am I just looking for an excuse to believe it or not believe it? Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that all of us are trying as deeply as possible to remain in neutral. And if that's the case, I think it'll be a powerful work. If we're not able to remain in neutral, then it's not going to be a powerful work for any skeptic. Sure. So I, I can tell you this, though, Chris. This is the evidence that I began to consider and that really began to lead me to Christ. So it may be the same evidence that will do that for somebody else. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, in the closing chapters, you ask some other questions. And again, I'll just let our listeners read those chapters for themselves. But um, but these all lead to the end of the book um, uh, and, and to, what you call, to what you call becoming a two-decision Christian. Uh, first, tell us the story of Officer Mark Walker uh, and how it illustrates the important difference between belief that and belief in when it comes to Christ. Yeah, I know. I think a lot of us as, as, as um, um, uh, apologists kind of mistakenly think that uh, an intellectual assent to a series of ideas means that you're now a believer. And of course, we all know this is a different kind of belief. It's a, um, a Christian belief is a belief that results in trust, that something is true. And um, Mark Walker was a guy who was involved in an officer-involved shooting. And at the time, I was part of the homicide team, and we would get called out to do officer-involved shootings. Middle of the night, he pulls over what he thinks is a drunk driver. He gets him out of the car, realizes as he gets him out of the car, this guy is really a player. I mean, this guy was definitely a hardcore guy. It turns out he pulled over a parolee who had just been released. He was carrying a semi-automatic handgun, did not want to go back to jail. Mark Walker gets him out of the car, realizes I better pat this guy down, and tells him he's going to pat him down. And, of course, when he tells the guy that, now the game is on. He, this guy is not going back to jail, and he knows that the pat-down is going to result in the discovery of the handgun. Mm-hmm. So he turns away from Mark. Turns right back around and faces him, and now he's got the handgun out. He's pointing it at Mark's chest. He's probably about, you know, maybe five feet away, six feet away. And Mark, and, and telling me the story afterwards, I get there. My job is to walk through the scene, the shooting scene, and say, hey, tell me what happened, and I go through all the elements of the shooting. Mark obviously survived it. He's telling me the story afterwards. And we're walking through the crime scene, and he's at the side of the car where this whole thing happened, and he's telling me where the guy was standing and where he was standing, and he said, man, he pulled that gun out. He had the drop on me. I didn't – I couldn't – what could I do? And you know, we as officers, we wear bulletproof vests, and we have confidence in these bulletproof vests because we know we've seen them uh, in, in uh, uh, shoot tests. We've been at the range where they've shot rounds into these vests. We know they stop rounds. We, we know that they can save us because we've seen the tests. So we have a belief that the vest – can save our lives. But on this particular night, Mark is now faced with the gun at his chest, <laughs> and he tells me, I knew I couldn't even get my hand on my gun before he was going to shoot me. So I just kind of tensed my stomach muscles and figured I'm taking the first round, maybe two. 
before I can get my gun out and return fire. And at that moment, his belief that the vest could save him turned to a belief in the vest, a trust in the vest to save him. Yeah. And he moves in one movement, one moment from belief that to belief in. And I'm trying to encourage folks that, you know, sometimes you don't know what you know until you go out someplace and, and put it to the test. Yeah. And this is what Mark did that night. He put that vest to the test, and he survived that shooting, and he was able to tell me about it. And uh, the reality is that I want people to move from being what I call one-decision Christians or an abbreviated Christian to what, what I think we all need to be, which is Christian case makers. I, I only wish that the term for Christianity, for you and I as members, as followers of Jesus, was not just we're Christians. I wish from the beginning it would have been we're Christian case makers. Mm-hmm. Because then we would see that this relationship is not just about saying I'm a Christian. It's about saying I'm a Christian with the depth of understanding that I can then communicate this to others and make a case for why I'm a Christian. Right. That's the two decisions. The first decision to follow Christ. The second decision to defend Christ, to defend what you believe. Yeah. And I think as we move into the second decision, we're going to start to move from belief that to belief in. We're going to take a step of trust. But we have to know what it is we trust in. Look, we watched this, the, the, the vest take the rounds in the range, and that was the evidence that he had in his mind when he trusted in the vest to save his life. So it's based on an evidence that he saw. And I think we have to have that kind of evidential competence so we can step out into the world with the vest on. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this book is to, to, to kind of limit the number of people who could literally and honestly call themselves accidental Christians and help us to become more reasonable, evidential Christians, Christian case makers. You know, I talk about, I think, a little bit in the book. Uh, I've been so long since I've written it now. I've got to go back and look at it. But <laughs> I've talked about it a lot on the podcast. Uh, you know, how the the call on our lives, we, we feel bad if we're not good evangelists because we feel like the Great Commission applies to us and we ought to be doing it better and we don't do it, we don't do it enough. But the reality is that Paul says in Ephesians, hey, some of you are pastors, some of you are evangelists, some of you are teachers, which clearly means that some of you are not good at these things. Right. That's okay. But Peter doesn't give us that out in First Peter 3. <laughs> he says all of you should be able to defend what you believe, that hope you have in you. That's a command to all of us. It's not like some of you are apologists and some of you aren't. Some of you are Christian case No, we're all commanded by Peter to be case makers. And so that's what I'm hoping to do with this book is say, hey, now is the time. Don't be abbreviated. Don't just be a Christian. Be a Christian case maker. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that serves as a, as a very good parting message uh, for us to be thinking about as, as we leave our discussion today. I would definitely encourage listeners to get a copy of your book. Where, where do you recommend that they go to get their hands on a copy of your book? Well, you know, I try to be really fair because I, I just you, – you know my, my ministry model, Chris. I've been a skeptic long enough to really re- resist the selling of things. Mm. So when I go speak at an event, I try to give as many free PDFs, videos, audios, and, and, and downloadable files to people as I can. But I think the most concise now body of my work is now in this book, Cold Case Christianity. So I'm trying to make it available – uh, and right now it's at a pretty good price on pre-sale, but it'll stay. I think it'll stay pretty low. And I've got it uh, fairly. Um, you, know, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's all those booksellers. I'm not trying. I, I couldn't care less. I mean, I'm not buying a bunch of these books so I can turn around and sell them and take that profit for myself. Mm. I couldn't care less about that. I'd love to write another book. I'll be honest about that. And I've already got some ideas of where I'd like to go next. But I can tell you, my hopes here is that this book has influence. Yeah. Before anything else. That people will read it and at least understand these concepts of evidence. So I've made it available at coldcasechristianity.com, but it's just a link to all the stores that sell it. (laughs) 
And so if, if you go to coldcasechristianity.com, you'll see um, on, the, on the toolbar on the right-hand side a link for where you can go to buy the book. And that link will provide you with all the, um, the sources. But you can get it at Amazon. And, 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 of course, you can get it through Stand to Reason now, too, which is great. And that supports the ministry of Stand to Reason. So if you're a Christian listening to this who loves Stand to Reason, buy it through them. But none of that stuff's going to come back to me in certain terms of, like, you know, if you buy it here, I get more money to buy it there. I, that doesn't matter to me. Uh, my hope, though, is that the material will be influential and it will be helpful to people who are reading it. Very good. And and just in case listeners have missed it, where can they go to find you at Please Convince Me and, and at Stand to Reason? Well, now I'm on, at the Stand to Reason side. I'm blogging there twice a week, and you'll see in the speakers section, I'm one of the four speakers that speaks for Stand to Reason. So I'm glad to be part of that project. So that's at str.org for Stand to Reason, str.org. My site that has uh, – and I'm still contributing podcasts to this site, but now it's being run really by another group of, of my f- friends who are, are detectives, lawyers, and cops at pleaseconvinceme.com. I do post blogs there a couple times a week, and so does Al Serato and and and, and uh, Aaron Brake and, and, and Dan Grossenbach and all kinds of people are posting there from law enforcement. And, and then, I, of course, the book is at coldcasechristianity.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm going to include links to those in the show notes and encourage my listeners to check it out. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Chris. You know how much I respect you, so I really appreciate you having me on. <laughs> thanks. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview with my friend Jim Wallace. Uh, be sure to check out his new book, Cold Case Christianity, uh, which is available now. Uh, and I hope that you'll stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...